Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? We have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Design Action Collective is looking for a lead web designer in Oakland, California. Companies, stop making excuses on your diversity and inclusion efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry, and I've got two quick things I want to mention before we get started with this week's interview. So first up, submissions are open for Recognize. Recognize is the design anthology featuring essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color who are, to me, the next generation of emerging design voices. So the theme for this year's anthology is fresh, and the deadline for submissions is April 30th. Make sure you read the rules before you submit. You can do all of this over at recognize.design. Again, the deadline for submissions is April 30th. Secondly, and this is for those of you that are in the Atlanta area, I would love it if you would come out to the Museum of Design Atlanta for Creative Atlanta 2020. Now, this is an interview series that Revision Path is doing along with Museum of Design Atlanta, and the goal of it is to highlight black creatives in Atlanta, ranging from an award-winning cellist to a Harvard Graduate School of Design Loeb Fellow. Now, the first conversation this year is actually going to be with that award-winning cellist with Okori Okechello Johnson. That's going to take place on March 26th at 6.30 p.m. Tickets are still on sale. You can head over to museumofdesign.org to get yours today. We'll also put a link in the show notes. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Fonz Morris, Growth Design Lead at Coursera. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Fonz Morris. I am the design lead on the growth team at Coursera.org, which is an online ed tech company based out of Silicon Valley, focusing on transforming lives through education. How did you get started there? Once my last startup that I helped get off the ground ended up not working out for me, I told my wife that if I was going to get a job back in 
corporate America or go back and leave the entrepreneurship space. I wanted it to be out in California. I just knew the community that was out here. I knew the the weather. I wanted a change of environment. I'm a father. I wanted to raise my daughter in a different environment than New York City or Philadelphia. And I just started to pursue opportunities out West. And I applied to different positions. Recruiters hit me up from different companies. And ultimately, I landed at Coursera in August of 2018. All right. What kind of projects are you working on there as a growth design lead? So currently, we just released our new homepage, which is doing fantastic. The numbers are up 4% across site-wide, which is really exciting for those of you who understand metrics. <laughs> I have recently worked on redesigning our promo unit system framework, which is really important for us because we have a lot of different products that we need to promote to different learners at different times. So our old promo unit system was just ineffective and it wasn't really producing traffic and it was really hard to develop the promo units, wasn't scalable. So we redid that. That was very successful. I also helped redo our degree white label framework. Degrees are a really important part of Coursera and for the future of Coursera. And we have about 18 degrees now, and each one is from a different university. So Mm -hmm. they need their own place to be able to house the necessary information. And another product that I worked on is our new UX search results page. We were having some issues with not getting users to the right content that they wanted. So we completely revamped that. And then also being on the growth team, I work on a lot of smaller experiments. We're really experiment-based where we'll roll out two, three smaller iterations of something to get the data from that, to be able to make a better educated decision on a design, which those are smaller tasks. So it's split between big projects like the ones I said originally, and then smaller ones that are more targeted towards growth specific and iterations. I got you. So it's a lot of, at least it sounds like it's some user testing involved with it when you're doing that sort of of comparison. Yeah. Yes, sir. Lots of it. So once again, I'll get technical real quick. Usually what we have is a control, which is what the actual live current site is. And then we'll have a variant A, a variant B, a variant C, and then we'll roll out each of those variants to a specific target group and we'll get the numbers back from those and then that way we can compare the effect that each design had on each target and be able to make a decision based off the metrics what's a regular day like for you there it sounds like there's a lot of meetings a lot of maybe cross-functional work stuff like that lots of meetings i don't think i would have ever thought that as a as somebody with designer in their title that i would have so many meetings (laughs) so i would say (laughs) It's funny. It's interesting. It's really interesting. And I had to get used to that because as a designer, I was a solo person. I was used to just sitting in front of my computer, zoning out and cranking out designs where now I would say my time is split almost maybe 60, 40, sometimes even 70, 30 meeting design. And then when you split in not necessarily formal meetings, but one-on-one meetings with the other designers that saw my team, because I'm a design lead, I support the other designers on the growth team as well. So when you add all of that up, 
you'd be surprised how much time I actually spend meeting, but that's because I'm helping come up with decisions and helping other designers come up with decisions with things like that to where my job is no longer only focused on what I can physically produce, but also what I can emotionally and uh, technically help other people with or grow with and things like that. So it's funny how, how many meetings I do have nowadays, though. So how many designers are on the growth team? Well, right now, we're about nine. Okay. At our highest, we were about 12. But that's something else that's tricky out here is the turnover at companies because a designer wants a better opportunity or they're a contractor or it's just not a good fit. So you see teams grow and shrink way more often than I thought. But Mm -hmm. right now, we're at about a strong nine. Yeah, I would imagine out there in Silicon Valley, because there's so many tech companies out there, really so many design-focused tech companies, that if you're a designer of a certain caliber, you kind of can just bounce from place to place if you want to, you know? That's what it feels like. You definitely get reached out to a lot of companies, but the hiring process at these companies are kind of tricky. So even if you are skilled, you still got to go through their, their hiring process, which is Definitely something that I wanted to talk about today because I don't know how many people understand how much work it takes to get at to get on at one of these companies Uh and just how sometimes it's also even just the luck of the draw because there's so many phases of it. You never really know which phase could take you out or if you're going to get through all of the phases as well. (laughs) Listen, let's talk about it because I'm actually in the middle of hiring. Well, not hiring. I'm on the interview team. So I'm doing a lot of like phone screens and resume screens. Let's talk about it because I actually have a lot to say about that. Talk to me sort of, I guess, when it comes to what you are looking for out of designers. It doesn't necessarily, I think, have to be specific, like skills. I'm sure, you know, skills are transferable, but what are you looking for Mm -hmm. when you're hiring for someone at Coursera? I think the level of designer is important because that ties into what we're going to ask them to produce. Mm Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, if we have a lot of production work, if there's a lot of designs that need to be produced that maybe we've already did a lot of the work for and we don't need to put a lot of the the whole the full product design process into this, then we can have then we could say maybe we're looking for someone who is not a senior level designer, but they're not really junior. And so because of that, now we'll be looking for communication skills. We'll be looking for the ability to do user research. We may not be expecting you to take the full, take a full project on that may go two or three quarters because you might not have had that kind of experience yet, but Mm -hmm. we'll be expecting you to be able to, to lead some things to a certain extent without any handholding to a certain extent as well. And that you determine through asking questions, asking them what type of responsibilities they've had at their previous positions. You'll ask them what type of things they're interested in and looking forward to working on if they get a new position. And then it's your job as the interviewer to take all that information and see if the two situations align mm-hmm. and feel like a good fit. Do you find that there are certain like skills or certain sort of qualities that you're looking for in particular? I think at the end of the day, we, we want to work with really nice people, yeah. good people. And that's what I really value about Coursera is that 
I really like my coworkers. Everybody is friendly. Everybody is smart. There's not a lot of egos. You feel you can trust each other. And those are more on the personal side than they are the technical skills. So mm-hmm. I would say be and being transparent when we ask you what your last job was about. We don't want you to sound as if you were the best thing since sliced bread or you were the LeBron James of product design because we want some people that have humility. So we want you to be able to tell us how you worked with a problem and how you solved it. And if maybe you bumped heads with somebody on your team, that's not that doesn't say anything about you. We're just really trying to figure out how you handle challenges. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for those type of things as well of problem solving and being able to maybe compromise with some people to figure out how to get past a certain point if y'all both were bottlenecked on the idea. So all of these are not technical things. These are just soft skills. Yeah. It's amazing to me how, and this is something that I knew, I sort of knew this before, but certainly once I started interviewing and hiring designers and just creatives in general, like your personality and your behavior oftentimes are more important than what you have on your resume or your cover letter. I mean, certainly that will get you, I think, in the door, get you past the screen. But like you said, you want to you want to work with people that are going to fit within the culture. And I know culture fit can kind of be a, a negative term that is thrown about. But like you said, you want to work with nice people, people that you can get along with and do work with. Like, that's really important. Culture fit is important, and I don't understand why culture fit is a negative word. It's it's important. Why is it important? Because as a Black man, when you think of what does it mean for me to be a culture fit somewhere, what does that mean? If it's not a Black organization, then what culture am I trying to fit into? So mm-hmm. I understand how it could be a like a negative situation. But I also think it's coming from the perspective of, do you have an ego? Are you just a nice person? Are you friendly? Do you get along well with with others on your team? Are you supportive? Do people want to come to work to work with you? And that's just important because you're with your coworkers more than you are with your family sometimes. So culture fit is important to me, but it does get tricky. And I know Mm -hmm. why people say that. But I definitely think culture, once again, goes into soft skills as well. And that's just really important because if I'm not talking to you about designs or if you're not literally doing a design, then you're most likely using your soft skills if that's communicating or sharing or analyzing or critiquing. So that's why it ends up being really important for someone in the product space to be strong on both sides of the coin. What other sort of advice would you give, like for someone that's, and not necessarily saying that they're looking to work at Coursera, but if they're looking to get into this industry, like what advice would you give to an up and coming designer that wants to get a job in design? I love that question. That's one of my favorite questions that I have actually spent days, hours, months trying to figure out what's the best answer to that. And I recently spoke at Afrotech and I'm really happy to be able to have come up with the the best answer to that question right before I did my talk. And (laughs) my answer, my answer is, I think you should take a second and think about all the different products that you interact with and what's your favorite and then figure out, would you want to work at that company? And if you want to work at that company, then you should go to that company's career page and you should look at all the positions that they have available And if any of those positions jump out to you, 
you should go into it. You should read the product, the description, the, the job description, and then you should read those requirements. And those requirements are pretty much your checklist of the skills and things you need to learn to be able to one day get that job. So I think that's a no cost, really valuable step that a lot of people don't do, but could do and should do to really learn the details of what it would take to possibly land your dream job. Because why I say this also is think about it. Somebody who has not developed any of their skills yet, why just blindly develop skills or go after skills that you heard somebody else say when you can think about where you want to be in your life, what company you think makes you happy, or if you want to build your own product, think about a company that built something like that. And then still go to their careers page because you still need that same information. You need a starting point. And I think that's something I've learned from a lot of people that might be transitioning careers mm-hmm. or trying to reskill. They need a starting point. And a job description is a really good starting point. That's a really that's some really good advice. I like the fact that you were saying, like, take that as like the things that you have to do, the checklist to get that particular job. And I would even say, you know, especially if you still want to work for that company. Even if that particular position may not be what you think it is, I can at least hopefully get your foot in the door there. There might be something else that you end up doing. The company might see what else you bring to the table. They might make a position for you. I mean, it's a rarity sometimes, especially depending on, you know, how established the company is. But especially like in in startups, like tech startups, absolutely. Like the job that you get is not necessarily the job that you will keep, if that makes any sense. Yes, that makes a ton of sense. And but when you think of it, how many people visit a company's career page? You don't have to only visit that page when you're looking for a job. There are learning sources. There are knowledge base of this is what this company is asking somebody to do. This position should know. And it's literally like your syllabus almost. It's like your career syllabus. And that's what I want my two cents to be to everybody is visit all of the job boards of all the companies you like and start taking notes and look and see if there's any redundancy in some of the skills that they're asking, because then those are the ones you really know you should learn as opposed to just, like I said, blindly trying to follow after somebody else and pulling skills that you think might be the hottest trends because those might not be the hottest trends later. Mm -hmm. That is very true. One weird thing that I've run into with interviewing, and I don't know if this is hubris or just like garden variety racism, (laughs) but but sometimes I will interview non-black candidates and Mm -hmm. just the tone that they take with me or the way Mm -hmm. that they will answer questions or not answer Mm -hmm. questions or mm. ask if there's someone else that they can speak to because they looked at my LinkedIn profile and they're like, well, I'll give you an example. And this is not tied to my current employer if you happen to be listening, but <laughs> I've certainly interviewed people before that have said, oh, well, I looked at your LinkedIn and like, you're not really a designer. So is there a designer that I can speak to? Like, this is back what? when I had my Wait studio, which I thought was Wait really interesting people- considering like I run the studio. So if you're talking to me, like the butt stops interview- here. Oh, yeah. People wanted to only be interviewed by a designer. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I guess I'll be transparent. This has also happened at the place that I work. But it's interesting mm-hmm. how, I don't know if this is like a a new thing that happens in design, no. but like 
I don't think people no. realize that just because you're interviewing with one person that you're also sort of subtly being interviewed by an entire team. Like that person is trying to see if you fit not just in the company, you know, or in this role, this particular singular role, but like, do you fit with the team? Like, do we want to hand off work to you? Do we want to hand off projects to you? Do we like you at the end of the day? And like, oh, if this is right. how you're acting at the, at like the phone screen stage, then you can forget it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like, I understand what you're saying. I don't think that the, okay. So I disagree with that. I think the first round should be, anybody the company wants to be just getting a temperature check of where you are and who you are as a person and being able to just, what do you went to? Why do you want to leave your job? Tell me about yourself. I don't really think you need to be a specific profession to ask somebody those type of high level, let me get to know you type of questions. So I think the recruiter being the first person that you speak to makes sense because I need to vet as well as all the people coming through the door. I'll let you speak to our designers and stuff like that in the second round where we're going to get a little more technical. But for the first go, Mm -hmm. because it's so introductory, I don't necessarily, I never felt as if the first person I I spoke to needed to be a designer. I was just really, honestly, to be candid, I'm just always happy to even make it to the phone screen. So Mm -hmm. I'm not focusing on who I'm talking to. I'm more happy that I'm talking to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I can, I can see her in that viewpoint. I still think though, it just helps to not like be a jerk essentially. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Always. Always. No, I am. I am always about respect and professionalism. Yeah. I think that is so important. I can't even think of the enormously important. You should never be a jerk to anybody if you're trying to get something from them. That's just common sense. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to get a job and I'm your first access point to the company and you're not being nice to me, I'm not sure how far you're going to make it. Yeah, that's true. I, <laughs> and I've, I've definitely run into that several times, but I guess in terms oh, wow. of, yeah, yeah. In terms of other advice, like, I can't stress enough the importance of having like a really good portfolio. Like I looked at your website, I see you have your portfolio and I mean, it's, it's great because it lists not only the things that you've done, but also like the thought process behind it. I know that I've talked to designers, young designers, you know, they're like just starting out or just coming out of school. And I'm like, it's so important for you to actually talk about your design decisions and not just show a bunch of mock-ups or a bunch of pretty mm-hmm. pictures like that. Like anyone can generate that. Like you can buy a mock-up mm-hmm. thing from like, I don't know, Mighty Deals or somewhere for like 14 bucks, slap in a few mm-hmm. logos. All of a sudden, look at all this work that I did that's mm-hmm. on billboards right. and folders. And like, no, it's not. It doesn't oh. really exist <laughs> in the real world, you know. Right. But like to talk right. about the the why behind why you're doing certain things. Like those shots might look pretty, but the critical thinking I think is more important as a designer i mean that's i think if you're visual or if you're something like product or ux like it's just still important to be able to articulate that in some way right so tell the story right that's another piece of information that i would want to say is people want to hear a story so when you only show the the final design you jump to the last page of the story so i don't know what the story's about i just you just jump to the end you know what i mean so it's like i don't know what story you just told me and it doesn't really show me how you got to that final design. And that's why 
some feedback. I actually just did a mentor session yesterday at Adobe with an organization out of San Francisco named Cascade SF. And it was fantastic because I got to actually interview about five junior designers and walk through their portfolio and give them feedback. And that was what I was focusing on the most was, are you telling me a story to get me from the top of the page to the bottom of the page? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what's so important. And you do that through breaking it up with letting me know what the problem is and letting me know that you understand the industry that you're in and then walking me through how you think about this could possibly be solved. And do you understand the user and understand what the user wants from this? And then that helps you figure out what your information and your content should be. And then that goes into information architecture. So it's a whole flow that you can end up telling somebody that would really help them understand why you made the decisions you made. And that's what people are really trying to get from your portfolio. They're, yes, they're trying to go to your about me page and read a little bit about you. But from your skill side, they're trying to figure out how you handled this problem, what you did in the process and how you did it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So speaking of the story, I mean, we have you on here to talk about your story. So tell me about where you grew up. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I went to a public art high school. I'm a self-taught designer, which I like to say that not to brag, but more of as an inspiration for anyone to know that once again, like I said earlier, if you work hard at something, I'm a true believer in you can achieve anything that you put your mind to. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be an architect when I was young and I taught myself architecture and went to a art high school. From art high school, I went into computer science at Georgia State. Well, I started at Morehouse actually, getting my degree in computer science. And then I transferred from Morehouse to Georgia State. And that's where I actually finished my degree in computer science. And I taught myself in my senior year of college, Georgia State got a grant from the state of university from Georgia State got a grant from the state to build a multimedia lab on campus. And they completely furnished it with all new multimedia equipment, Mac equipment, PC, Adobe, Macromedia, Pro Tools, Final Cut, new Canon equipment. They, They completely furnished it with all new things for us to use as students. And I pretty much just moved into the lab and I taught myself everything that, that I could possibly know there. Mm. So let's, let's and it was step, a great experience. Let's step back a little bit. So self-taught designer also here, same way. Mm-hmm. Was your family like supportive of you going into design or architecture? Like, did they see this as something that you could do for a living? I don't think I spoke to them enough about it. I was always an academic type of student. So as long as I stayed in my books, my parents were supportive of anything that I was doing. I actually had a friend whose father was a black architect. And then I did a, I tried to get an internship with another black architect. And I took some courses at Parsons School of Design when I was in high school. And this energy showed my parents that I was really interested in architecture. So I did have support for them, but I will say, I don't know if they knew to the extent or to the, to the degree that I wanted to 
pursue design or pursue architecture at that moment. I mm-hmm. tried to show them the best I could through the work I did in school and through my passion for looking at buildings and constantly reading architecture books and architecture magazines. So I would say that that they supported me to the best that they knew how. Okay. What drew you to architecture? I just feel like I'm a, because I like design at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. growing up in New York City, you're around a lot of skyscrapers. And that's where some of the, the most famous architects have planted their seeds. And when you're walking up and down Fifth Avenue or when you're walking in Soho or in Brooklyn and you you see all these amazing Art Deco style buildings and these modern buildings from with all these different heights and kinds of windows. And then you see you got the Brooklyn Bridge and you got the Manhattan Bridge and you got the George Washington Bridge and the Queensboro Bridge. It's so many different bridges that you're seeing. And these are all amazing examples of architecture. So I would think growing up in New York City is what exposed me to architecture. Mm. And being in the city is what then made me say, I want to design one of these buildings one day. Yeah. Now, I also went to Morehouse, so I have to ask about it. What was it like when you when you got there? What was it like when you first got there? It was an amazing experience being a black man wanting to connect with other black men in a higher education space. It was really self-rewarding and I was very proud and accomplished. I also wanted to to attend the HBCU as well. My sister went to North Carolina A&T. So it was almost as if I felt as if I had made it to a certain level education wise because I had made it into Morehouse, which in my community was respected as a very prestigious school for black men. Mm -hmm. So I love the experience. I ended up transferring, though, in all honesty, because one, I paid for college out of my pocket and Morehouse being a private college is very expensive. The tuition is way higher than the state university, as well as they don't offer in-state tuition. Mm -hmm. And then sadly, which this this has a trickle down effect. The resources that I needed to be successful just wasn't available at Morehouse while I was attending. But I don't think that's a shot at Morehouse. I think it's it's an eye opener to understanding the value of getting funding and what you can do with the right money. Because yeah. Georgia State, on the other hand, had all of the new equipment, all of the new computer labs, all of the things I needed to pursue my computer science degree successfully, Georgia State was able to give me. So that's why I left Morehouse. From a cultural and from a personal feeling, I really loved going to Morehouse. It really mm-hmm. made me proud walking on a campus every day and seeing so many other brothers trying to better their lives and their family lives to getting a higher education. But when it came to the resources, the state university just had an abundance of them. Yeah. And I mean, at Georgia State, geographically, you weren't that far from Morehouse anyway. It's like, you could take the 13 no, down like, to Fair Street and you're, you're right there on campus. Yeah, so. I could take Ralph David Abernathy right across and be yeah. there in no time. Like, pew! Yep. So, yes. Yes. And and Atlanta is still a very Black-focused city. So, yes. when I left to go to Georgia State, I didn't have any regrets. I felt as if I was just doing what was the best for me yeah. at that moment. Yeah. But I love Morehouse. I love yeah. Morehouse. I think it's a very important institution in our community. It's so interesting you mentioned that about the resources. So you got there in 97, I think you said? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. got there in 97. I got there in 99. I also started out in computer science. I okay. started out 
actually dual degree, computer science, computer engineering, because the scholarship that I had, we had to major in one of the STEM fields. And I wanted to do computer science mainly because I wanted to do web design. I had been learning web design on my own, just like reverse engineering web pages at my, like, mom's school's computer lab and like teaching myself HTML. Cause I mean, I'm from, so I'm from a small town, Selma, Alabama. We didn't have a bookstore. The library had one computer that could get on the internet. So like, we didn't have a whole lot of resources around like learning this stuff. I mean, at the college, they had more resources, but I was teaching a lot of that stuff myself. And so when I went to and also, I would say I wanted to major in computer science because I wanted to be like Dwayne Wayne from a different world. Oh, so. nice. Right. <laughs> Listen, in all transparency, part of the reason I wanted to go to a black college as well was because a different world, like you just said, as yeah. well as the TLC dropped the baby, baby, baby video. It was like, oh, man. Like? <laughs> oh, man. Is that what college is like? Are you kidding me? Look, I'm hip- not missing out on that. There, I don't know if there's a think piece or something out there like on The Root or like The Undefeated or something about how like hip hop and the 90s and how they glorified college. You don't see People that. I mean, there was sweatshirts. Oh, my no, God. College, let's be smart. You know what I mean? You don't have none of that anymore. None of that. Oh, man. Oh, man. But like I got to I got to Boros's campus. I started out computer science, computer engineering switch to i think i switched to computer science maybe after like the first few weeks or so because i didn't really want to do the engineering part but i wanted to do web design and i remember i was sitting these names will take you back i was sitting in dr jones's class mm-hmm. and <laughs> did you take a class with dr jones which class is that i think it might have been like computer programming one i think like one of the intro classes Man, listen, don't make me show how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to go through my transcripts and look for any of my names and my professors. But I remember so the thing that I didn't like about Dr. Jones and he's passed on rest in peace. But the thing about Dr. Jones was he wouldn't teach. He would sit in class and tell all his anecdotes about his fishing buddies and (laughs) <laughs> you know, growing up and, and all this sort of stuff. And we're just sitting here like, when is the class going to start? And I don't know if this was like a way to weed people out. But then like when you were ready to go to the next class, then he would start teaching. It's like, oh, I guess we got rid of all the stragglers. Now we can, you know, now we can you know start learning something. But Dr. Jones was also my advisor. And so I remember going to you remember the secretary, Mrs. Banks? Mm hmm. Oh, man. I don't know if she's still there or not, but man, she was my best friend at Morehouse all four years I was there because I, I ended up switching my major to math largely because. Oh, wow. Yeah, I switched my major to math because I was I met with Dr. Jones and I told him I wanted to go into doing web design and I showed him some like design stuff I did. Like I did the design for the project space scholarship program. And I was like, look at all this stuff yeah. I've done. And he was like, look, the Internet is a fad. Like all this <laughs> WW web stuff, like this stuff ain't going to be around. That's not what we teach you here. If that's what you want to do, you need to change your major. So I was like, well, See, shit, that's I guess. the problem is that <laughs> computer science programs, computer science programs should have picked up web development years ago. Yeah. But like, this is 1999 though. Like, I don't know that many colleges that would have had a curriculum. So I, which is not to oh, say that well, he was wrong. Anything. Don't get me wrong, but like right. it, it didn't have anything. He was really right. like, if this is what you want to do, you need to like major in something else. 
And I, mm-hmm. you know, thought about it and looked at my transcript and my credits and stuff. And so I switched over to math because I had enough credits from taking like AP math courses in high school to say, oh, well, if I switch over to math, I can just graduate early. Like for me, I was thinking, how soon oh. can I get out of here? Because like, <laughs> right. I, I was figuring like, and also my freshman year was rough. That's a whole other story. But I was really oh, thinking wow. like, like, wh- like, how soon can I get out of here and get my degree? You know? And right, I, sw- like, I, yeah. <laughs> I switched over to math and just stayed in math. I, ended- I graduated in three and a half years. So I technically graduated in 02, but I walked in 03. But yeah, like even then, like there was nothing. I remember the computer lab there being so, and not to rag on Morehouse because now it's gotten better. Now they have like a whole technology tower. I think Dr. Um was still teaching back then, but now he's the chair. He's the chair now. But okay. I remember they just had these old archaic like, Sun Microsystems, Silicon yeah. Graphic Workstations. I'm like, what in the hell is this? Yeah. How am I supposed <laughs> to use this? I have to use Linux? It's what are tough. we like? Right. It was rough. Right. It was really right. rough back then. And I was like, man, maybe it was a good thing I did change my major. Although, to be but clear, that's why HBCUs need to be able to get the funding from the government to be able yeah. to pay for these things. You know what I mean? Like a yeah. lot of the HBCUs pay for this stuff with their own money. And mm-hmm. that stuff's expensive. Although, to be clear, like, you know, when I switched over to math, it wasn't like I was going into a technological workplace either. I mean, they had these, I almost felt like as sometimes I was sitting in like a one-room schoolhouse, just like really bad quality desk, blackboard broken, like, <laughs> and again, this is like, this is like 90, yeah, but this is like 99 to 2000, like, and I would imagine it's different now, but Part of me didn't, honestly, part of me didn't know any better because I'm like, oh, I came from Alabama. So we use, we use chalkboards and overhead projectors because that's what we use in high school. So when we're doing that in college, I was like, oh, this is like what you're supposed to do. And then I knew people that were going to like Georgia State and Georgia Tech using like these smart whiteboards and stuff. I was like, what? I'm out here sketching out comic solids with a piece of chalk and y'all are just keying in an equation and getting the graph. What? Oh man! Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very funny. (laughs) Like I agree with you, and I understand what you're saying. And they've made a lot of progress since since those days, which is good to see. I was down there about two years ago, and when I walked on campus, I could see the growth. It felt good. Yeah, they've definitely grown a lot. Now I would say they still. I don't know. I mean, Morehouse has its, and not to rag on Morehouse, but Morehouse has other issues outside of funding and just curriculum and software and hardware and things like that but it has grown a lot i I will give it that much like the performing arts center and all new equipment and things the the revamped cafeteria and everything you know i mean movies are shot on campus now like a good part of hidden figures was shot on morehouse's campus tyler perry is changing atlanta man yeah bringing that film there heavy which is good because there's a lot of money in that space so yep atlanta the (laughs) eight i miss atlanta I miss Atlanta sometimes. I honestly do. Hey, it's always here. <laughs> always <laughs> here. We want to come back. Not going anywhere. Nowhere. So you transferred to Georgia State, and you were talking about how it was different from Morehouse. Once you graduated from there, like, what was your first design gig? Like, what were you working on? I started doing flyers for people and doing business cards and doing logos for anybody that needed it, no industry specific. And then I started to get better at that. And that's when I got my first, first project ever 
was, well, my first ever paying gig was a website for a furniture company, a small indie furniture company. And I think they paid me, I think the whole deal that my partner worked out with ended up being, I think either 35 or 5,500 for a full website. And I just could not believe it when he came back with a 50% deposit. Wow. And I said to myself, are you kidding me, man? They actually (laughs) gave you that money. And that's what let me know that there was a lane for me. Is that where Third Eye Designs came out of? Pretty much. I've always been a believer in, in having your third eye open and then designs. And that just felt like the best name of a company possible to me was Third Eye Designs. And so that furniture company was Third Eye Designs' first paying client. Okay. How long were you freelancing like that? Oh, I still do it to this day. So Oh, okay. <laughs> they almost... I mean, because it grew from freelancing into now that I'm later in my career, it's just consulting. Yeah, yeah. But I don't call it third-eye designs anymore, but the process or the concept of doing freelance design work, I still do it to this day. Okay. But I'll always be able to do that, which that's the thing, which message, this is why you always want to learn a skill because they can never take that skill away from you. Mm-hmm. So because I'm a designer, they can never take that away from me. I can always make money doing design whether it's at a company or whether it's freelance or whether it's trying to build my own product. So that's the value of having a relevant skill. Yeah, absolutely. So how long was it until you moved back to New York City? After I was doing Third Eye Designs, I realized maybe I could get a job in the industry. And that's when I got my first art director position at a money transfer company that was a small, tiny version of like a Western Union And I did that for almost two years. And that's where I really got my first bearings and understanding what it's like to work with engineers who are going to be building your stuff. And this is what a web developer is versus a web designer and really understanding the programming languages like that. And then I actually had a tragedy in my family. My little brother actually ended up getting killed in New York. And that's when I decided. To, that's when I decided to just leave Atlanta. It was just a whole life-changing experience for me. And yeah. I just felt like I needed to be back around my family. And so I left Atlanta to go back to New York. And when I got to New York is when I got my first agency job where I was working, working on a lot of different marketing style materials, banners, flash banners, web banners, landing pages for entertainment companies, movies. And New York is a good place for design. So it was an easy place for me to get a job once I left Atlanta. Now, was this at My Artist DNA? No, this is not even portfolio. Well, not portfolios, but resumes are so hard to decide what to put and what not put. My Artist DNA was pretty much what what Third Eye Designs in, was Third Eye Designs' first product. Oh, okay, okay, so okay, I got going, you. So I'll keep going with this and it'll start to make a lot more sense. So once I went back to New York and I started working in the agency space, I kept the third eye designs idea going with the same partner. And we started to to do even bigger projects for even more people. We worked with Def Jam and we did Kanye West banners and we worked mm-hmm. with Def Jam and we did Jagged Edge stuff and Rick Ross and we worked with Universal Music and we did 
movie releases and we just realized, wow, we're getting good at this. We're actually <laughs> getting real clients. And then another partner of ours from Morehouse joined on board. He opened up his network and then we was doing work with real estate companies and all these other different new businesses. And what ended up happening is one of our clients that we had did a lot of work for, Aqua hired us. Actually, the it's an amazing story. The angel, our first angel investors were a family out of Pennsylvania, the Lomax family, mm -hmm. the Honorable Dr. Walter Lomax. He was actually Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s physical, well, physician, his real physician. And that's the craziest part. He's like a wow. legend that most black people don't know. But his family were really focused on investing in a lot of black startups and black businesses all across the country and across the world, actually. So they put up the money for me to build my artist DNA. And that was my first product, which was supposed to be a way for indie artists to promote and monetize their brands. It came out around the time MySpace stopped and Facebook pages had just launched. Man. So you go from attending Morehouse where Martin Luther King went to now getting supported by <laughs> the family of his doctor. Greatest, greatest experience <laughs> ever. And most wow. people don't even know. Most people don't even know of the Lomax family. They are amazing, amazing people. They have done so much. They've been behind the scenes for so many different things that people don't know. And I just am very fortunate enough to have worked with them and they put up real angel money for us to build our first product. I will forever be thankful for them, forever appreciative. And it's what really allowed me to get my product design career started. Because prior to this, I was doing web design and graphic design. But once we started doing Marty DNA, that was my first step into actual product design. Wow. So you also worked for a gaming company, is that right? High Five Games? Yes. So the startup Marty's DNA, we did that for about five years, but then we ultimately ran out of funding and I was engaged and knew I needed to get a job again. And then I was in Philadelphia at that moment and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to do something fun. I want to do something I haven't tried before. And High Five Games was a video game company that built casino games for Facebook as well as in-house casinos. So I was an art director there and I worked on the marketing team, which allowed me to try to help promote our new games that were coming out and our new campaigns and coming up. So it was actually my first attempt at working on a growth team because my whole job was to try to create these amazing visuals to keep people wanting to play our games. Mm -hmm. And so you're in New York, you're working at Pi 5 Games as art director doing mm -hmm. UX stuff. When did you decide to move to Philly? Like what brought that on? So my first move to Philly was when we got the angel investment because the Lomax family was based out of Pennsylvania. Okay. So we needed to be in Philly to be able to get back and forth to the office because they were our investors and we needed them to, we needed to go into the office to be able to talk and help strategize and plan things out. So that was my first stint in Philly. Once that didn't happen and I moved back to New York was High Five Games. And then I left High Five Games and went to Philly a second time to work at Comcast, which is Xfinity. Gotcha. Cable. That was my second stand in Philly. What was it like working I there? I like Philadelphia. 
Yeah, Philly's a great city. I went for the first time in, what year was that? 2017, I think? No, not 2017. 2018, I think, was the first time I went. Great city. Great city. Great food scene. I love Philly. A lot of people were telling me when I went to Philly, like, oh, Philly's rough. I was like, Philly? I had a great time in Philly. I enjoy Philly. Philly is rough. Philly is rough, <laughs> I will be honest. But, but that's if you go to the wrong Places. Right, I think right. everywhere is rough if you go to the wrong places. So, oh yeah, but absolutely. What's, what's critical about Philly is its proximity to New York and its proximity to DC. Mm-hmm. So it's like a middle point between two major cities. So depending on if you're in government in DC or if you're in banking or real estate or finance in New York, you can even live in Philadelphia and commute to New York as often as you need. Oh wow! Okay, that's what I was doing. What was it like working at Comcast? It was interesting. It was interesting. <laughs> I learned a lot. Why do I say that? It's because I was a contractor. Okay. And when you're a contractor at these big companies, you get treated a little different. You mm-hmm. still get to, I mean, you still go to work every day, but certain company meetings you don't get to go to. Like they had a gym in the building that I couldn't use because I was a contractor. And you always have this kind of, stigma over your head of you're like a second class citizen because you're a contractor so when you can put that aside which is not that easy working there was cool because it was the hottest company in the city i could walk to work the building and the work environment was amazing my coworkers were cool i got to work on a lot of high profile stuff i got to work on the netflix release i got to work on the olympic Mm. stuff I got to work on that new X1 remote. So I got to work on a lot of projects and different products. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about design systems. And I learned a lot about the difference between art directors and creative directors and working with sales teams. So it was a really important learning process for me. And Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about things, not only design related, but just basic work environment related. Gotcha, gotcha. And that's what made me realize that also, that's what made me realize I never wanted to be per se a contractor again at a company. That stability is not really there. And I've realized I needed to hone in on my skills. And if I wasn't going to do entrepreneurship, I needed to get a full-time position somewhere because the contracting stuff just kind of gets in the way sometimes. So that kind of clouded my experience at Xfinity a little bit in all transparency. Yeah. I worked at AT AT&T from like 2006 to 2008, also as a contractor. And yeah, I I know what you mean about that second class citizen kind of status. Like aside from the fact that they will just kind of treat you in that way, there's also the fact that, and I don't know if it was like this at Comcast, but like at AT AT&T, they kept changing the goalposts when it came to like what they measured you for success by. So Mm. because like the employees were, I guess, kind of set because they had a salary. And so whatever happened, happened, but like contractors were held to this really super rigid, like almost like a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross kind of like standard of you have to make this Mm -hmm. many points a week. And if you don't make this many points a week, you're fired. Like, Right. And and they would be quick to tell you that they will get someone else in to fill your spot like that. Like they don't, they don't care. Right. Right. And also randomly, if you're a contractor and you're already feeling some kind of way, being the only black man on the design team 
doesn't really help either. You know what I mean? <laughs> so there were certain times where I just had to really ask myself, is this the right place for me? Yeah. And did I really see myself having upward mobility in that company? And lucky enough, the same guys that I did my first company, Marty's DNA with, they raised another round of money. And that's when I left Comcast to join their team as head of design at my channel, which is a startup that was focusing on video telecommunications. Nice. How long were you at my channel? For about two years. Okay. For about two years. We started, I started doing a little bit of part-time work while I was still at Comcast. And then we were making so much progress and the vibe and the energy was, was good. We were doing well. I just decided to leave and go full-time at my channel. Nice. So that was my second stint at entrepreneurship. Well, mm-hmm. like my third one, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so while you were at my channel, right after that was when you decided you wanted to move out West and sort of pursue yeah. your career there. There you go. So here we go. Full circle. Now this whole, all this rambling I did made sense. We're right back <laughs> to where it all makes sense of how I got here now. But you know what? What I want to honestly say is, and for anyone that's listening to this, live your own path. You never know what's going to work. Try different things out. Make the best decisions you can. We're all human. You're going to learn so much from every step of the road that don't try to be too perfect because part of life is just figuring things out. And I'm really happy with the path that I took in my life. I don't regret any of it. And I'm happy it led me to where I am now. And there was many points in my career that I didn't see getting this far in design for whatever was going on at that moment, but also to tie back into some stuff I said earlier, that's why you have to be patient with yourself and you have to have self-confidence and you have to believe in yourself because you can achieve anything. Yeah. You mentioned speaking at Afrotech last year and Afrotech is a huge event. It's all about diversity in the tech community. I would say it also ostensibly kind of shifts over into diversity in the design community because design and tech tend to be pretty linked. I would say with the tools that people use and things, how do we increase diversity in the design community? I think you have to find all the people that's interested in it and you have to introduce it to people who may not have thought about it. Awareness is critical. That's a really good first step. So let me say awareness. Final answer. Okay. And by awareness, do you mean just awareness that we're here or just awareness that that there's an actual profession, that there's an actual profession that you can go into that's not necessarily just called design, but that there that there is a position titled UX designer, UI designer, UI writer, UX researcher, product manager, product designer. I don't think a lot of people understand the granular levels of careers in tech. You just mm-hmm. understand the overarching umbrella of tech, and then you may go to the overarching umbrella of design. But when I speak of awareness, I want to let a population of people who may not be familiar with this understand all of the different disciplines that you can pursue. And by doing that, you allow people to find what's interested to them as well as what they're passionate about. And Mm -hmm. then by doing that, that's how you help somebody make their first step into deciding, I actually do want to get into design and I want to be X position. But if you don't know that there's a such thing as a data scientist or as a product designer or as a UI or interaction designer, how are you really going to achieve to want to become one of those? I mean, having that exposure is important too, to know that this is 
a potential thing. Sort of like what you said with the granularity. I mean, when you and I started out, like you were a web designer, you're a graphic designer, mm-hmm. you're a webmaster. That's pretty much it. And like mm-hmm. as technology and design have certainly evolved over the years now, you can get so, so specific with the type of design that you do. And I do think that makes it harder when you're just coming into it because there are these, and and I I don't know if you see this too, but like, I feel like if you're, if you want to get into the design industry, there certainly are paths that you can take that feel like they're a little more, I don't want to say reliable than others, but like, say someone Mm -hmm. will go to, they say, you know what? I want to get into design. So they hear about general assembly they go to General Assembly, they take the UX, you know, intensive course in like, I think it's like 10 or 12 weeks or something like that. They get out, they get placed at a place. Now they're a UX designer. They hate UX. Right. But they went through it because they felt like that was a way to get in, you know? Right. See, that's where I'm saying they skipped that first step of what I said almost 45 minutes ago of figuring out what part of this do you actually like? Don't be so caught up in the UX part. Be yeah. caught up more in, I like the way Apple products look. I mm-hmm. really like the brand style of that. So that's not UX. So yeah. you going to UX don't mean that's what you're going to do. Really take the time to to focus on what you want to do. Right. And I think that's where you'll decide, do you want to really go into a UX program from general assembly that might not be the best step for you but if you don't really know what you want to do Mm -hmm. i think that's where you end up starting to make the decisions that you think might work for you as opposed to what really would work for you so the exposure i do agree with you as well that the exposure could bring some layer of complexity but i also think that it will ultimately lead to a layer of clarity yeah that's a good way to put it i like that because Oftentimes, you know, just knowing that these positions exist is one thing. Like, I think sometimes, you know, to be honest with you, some folks get caught up in the salary. They'll see that this place is paying this much and they're like, oh, I got to get into tech. Oh, I got to get into design. And yeah, there is money if you go with the right company and the right position, but it's got to be something that speaks to you, something that speaks to your unique skills and talents and what you like. And it shouldn't just be about chasing you know, a salary, because if anything, I think we both know, like, I won't say designers are a dime a dozen, but like you can be replaced in some way. It's not so much about just trying to make sure you get a paycheck at the end of the day. Right. Right. I I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. I mean, money is definitely important for sure, but there's a lot of people that make a lot of money that are not really happy. So if you're happy, is important, then money can't be the dominant deciding factor because that means you'll take the money to work at a company for a position that you're not really happy in. And I think that ends up having a lot of negative consequences. So I would tell anybody, male or female, to fight for the most money you can get, but also understand that there's other things that matter when you're looking for a career than just the money. Right. What keeps you motivated and inspired these days? I have a family to take care of. And my family is really supportive and inspired by me and proud of me. And I'm proud of myself. My growth over my career keeps me motivated. The love and support from my community 
shout out to you. Honestly, I just hit you up on Twitter and LinkedIn and asked you, hey, how do I figure out how to participate in your show one day? And you responded to my tweet in honestly less than an hour. You responded to my LinkedIn message in less than 30 minutes. So that type (laughs) of interaction, but that kind of interaction and support, that's what keeps me motivated because that means people respect me. And that respect goes a long way. That respect is what makes you feel good. That respect is what will also cheer you up maybe when you're having a bad day. So the respect for my community, I would say, is what keeps me really motivated. And when I say community, I'm using that as a broad term. I'm not just using that as the mm-hmm. black community or my family. I'm using it as the design community, the tech community, the Bay Area community, my community back in Brooklyn. So my community motivates me, honestly. What haven't you done yet that you want to do in your career? Well, what I've been doing has been in my last last couple of months on, and then I want to thank you as well, is more public speaking. A lot of people have told me that they think I could possibly have a lane in speaking. They think I have a motivational style and an inspirational style, and I can explain things that could could possibly be complicated in a more layman's type of way. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of value in that. And I also really like supporting people. And I think speaking allows you to do all that. So I would like to do more speaking. Shout out to Afrotech. They're the ones that really gave me my first first shot at speaking on such a big platform like that. I had been doing smaller events here and there, but the Afrotech, the success of Afrotech is what let me know that I would like to continue doing speaking as well as I think I want to start some kind of online school to help with training the community to gain the skills that they need to decrease this digital divide gap that I see every day that I work and participate in design. So one of the themes that we have for this year that I'm I'm trying to carry this throughout 2020 is basically how are we as black designers and, you know, developers, technologists, et cetera, how are we using the skills that we have to build a more equitable future? Because I mean, the, the future technically is now, I think 2020 you know, shout out to ABC, like 2020 has been a year that has been in the collective consciousness for over 20 years. I mean, since the show was Mm -hmm. on ABC. So people have always Mm -hmm. had a notion of 2020 being like the future. Mm -hmm. Now that we're here and you look at your life, you look at your career, you look at the skills that you have, how are you helping to build a more equitable future? I think by supporting other people, to become a designer and blazing trails and making sure that I'm a face of diversity in design. I think there's a lot of, you need trailblazers and I'm not saying I'm the only trailblazer, but you need trailblazers to be able to bring awareness to situations. And that's what I'm doing every day. That's what I put 125% into doing that. But I also understand and think the value in supporting my community, talking to mentoring, talking to people, going to portfolio interviews, having one-on-one calls with people who, who may reach out to me that want that have questions about UX and UI. They don't know anybody in product design that they can show their portfolio to or just ask a question. I think being that resource for people is really how I can give back 
the most. Yes, I can give back through my designs and I make sure to try to bring diversity to my designs. And I'm really proud of that. And I love being at Coursera because I can do that. And I've seen that. I've seen my power of being able to use people of color on the homepage of Coursera. And that's a big step for us. That's something that I spoke about in my talk at Afrotech. So I think those are the ways that I'm able to actually give back and help. Nice. That's funny you mentioned that. It reminds me of um, uh, Diogenes Brito, who we had on the show. This was years ago, but he was talking about how he changed the default Slack hand to like a brown mm-hmm. hand and how that, mm-hmm. <laughs> how even just like that simple gesture was right. something that like made shockwaves, you know, just the fact that you see the default hand is not a white hand. It's a black hand or a brown hand. Like, what does that mean? You know? So I, I, it's funny, even those little small or what can seem like small gestures can have a really you know kind of huge impact. Like huge. That. They're huge. I'll tell one quick story. When we redid our promo unit platform that I spoke about working on, I was able to sit with some of the designers and show the flexibility of the new system. And one of the days that I logged on to Coursera.org, I saw a brother in one of the new promo units that we just did. And I saw a sister in another promo unit that we did. And then when you looked at another place, there was another person of color on the site. And it just really showed diversity and it was a good first step for Coursera and it was an amazing step for me so I don't think you you really should look at it as was it a big or small step it's mm-hmm. a step that is necessary so shout out to the brother who did the slack hand because that is amazing <laughs> and shout out to everybody who is making a difference in whatever way that they can because we need everybody to do everything that they can where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like it's, it's 2025. What is Fonz working on? I think I have become a, a household name in design as far as a representative from the black community. I think I will have my, at least my prototype first version of some type of training platform off the ground to be able to help mentor and teach and educate future designers or current designers or people who want to upskill or reskill. And I think I'll always still be designing as well. I may have started, may have finally launched the app. I'm thinking about doing some kind of an app that just allows people to have a place to talk and maybe vent and get support. So you'll see me probably doing something entrepreneurship wise, as well as still being a powerhouse in the design industry somewhere leading some kind of team to victory. Nice. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can go to, I'm very active on Twitter. You can find me at young Fonz, Y O U N G F O N Z. You can find me on Instagram at Fonz money, F O N Z M O N E Y. You can also find me on LinkedIn at Fonz Morris. I'm not the biggest social media user for gossip, but I am the biggest social media user for networking and brand promotion. So you can find me on all three of those social media platforms, as well as if you just want to see some of the work that I do, you can go to my portfolio, which is Fonz, F-O-N-Z dot design. And you can email me. You can 
However you want to try to find me, you can reach out. To, I'm online. Trust me. You type Fonz Morris in the Google search bar. You'll see me. Nice. Hit me up. <laughs> well, Fonz Morris, I want to thank you so much, so much for coming me on too. the show. I mean, your energy. I mean, like so people for people that know that I'm recording this, I'm recording this like after my work day. So like after eight hours, your energy has me pumped now. Like, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I hear I- I hear such positive feedback from people like that. And like last night when I was doing the mentoring with the junior designers, I got some same feedback like that. So Maurice, that's what I was saying. I think I have a lane in speaking and public speaking because my passion for design and my passion for my community and my love for just humanity mm-hmm. <laughs> allows me to be able to share that and bring that energy to the table every day. So thank you for sharing that with me because those are the type of pieces of feedback that's really important to me. I'm no longer as focused on, am I just a good visual designer? I'm focused on that. And am I a good guy? Am I interesting? Am I exciting? Am I still bringing a lot of energy to the table? So I'm glad that you were able to receive that from me because I wanted to bring that because I feel really honored and excited to be a part of your podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Fonz Morris. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Fonz and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project, your next podcast, etc.? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com today. I'll even put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mari Sherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know. That's really kind of the best way for us to know not only how we're doing, I guess, as a podcast, but also to hear from you, the listener. Like, I love reading those reviews. Of course, I'll even read your review right here on the show. So please leave a rating and a review. Five stars, of course, um, if you love the show. And uh, definitely would love to hear from you. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.